Man, I am so helped looking around the room and seeing engaged faces, bodies, postures in worship was struck this service as I was sitting over there looking down this third aisle right here. I'm pointing at you, Sean. I'm about to... You might not have seen this, but we were singing one of the songs this morning and we got to Hallelujah, Christ is King, alive and reigning on the throne. And as we sang that line, I don't know, about 50 of us, you in the room, your hands just raised in adoration at what we were singing. Mindy's did, Sean's did, and she's holding her little boy, Zeph. And about a second after that happened, his little hand went (laughs) like this. But it was beautiful. It's this reminder that, that... that your engagement in our corporate sung worship is so important. It can either teach our children, not just by the words that we're singing, but in our very posture, a correct posture under Christ, our King. But it can do the opposite also. Zeph could have looked over and seen someone with their hands in their pockets, just holding their coffee, kind of looking at the clock, waiting for the sermon and, and thought just the opposite. So it's just great reminder to us. Are you engaged heart, heart, mind, and body as we're singing? But it was beautiful. Seth is going to, Zeph, I mean, is going to be, my brother is Seth. Seth. Zeph is going to be a worshiper. I can see it. He's learning. <clears throat> but I want us to read, oh, I forgot my Bible. Can I just go down here and get my Bible real quick? That's important. That's where we're, That's what we're here for, right? (laughs) I want to read our text today. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, please. Before I read our uh, 10 through 17 verses today, I I want to read again to you the the chorus of that song that we just sang. I want you to hear these words in 1 Corinthians uh, in the light of this that we just declared in our song. This, the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. He took the blame. He bore the wrath. So that we stand forgiven at the cross. Or the last chorus, this, the power of the cross, the Son of God slain for us. What a love. What a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. This is the power of the cross. Now listen, 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Let me pray for us as we're going to think on these verses here. Uh, Lord, it it just is amazing to me that your plan to make disciples of all the nations uh, was to do it through us, through people, through men and women, and young and old, through our words, us, 
reading and teaching and preaching and proclaiming your words, that you would use us. Lord, the, the, the danger in this for us is that we can forget where the power really comes from of salvation. We can get it upside down. We can become proud, overly confident. So Lord, I pray this morning you'd humble us that, that this, and, and, and as we're going to be thinking of this, this one issue here in 1 Corinthians for the next few weeks in these four chapters, Lord, that you'd use them to make us and keep us a humble church where it's always clear what is the power of salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, Randy pointed out that 1 Corinthians is an interesting sort of letter. It's, other than the introduction and the conclusion, it's a lot of admonishing which can make us uncomfortable. It's Paul wading into at least 10 big problems in this church, or as he describes it in chapter three, marks of in- immaturity. Each one of these problems he's gonna address in one way or another is evidence of an immaturity in their thinking and in their faith. In, in chapter three, verse one, he says, I couldn't address you as spiritual ch- uh, people, but as people of the flesh, Uh, as infants in Christ. People of the flesh means people who see things the way the world sees things, through the lenses of the world. And and he says that's really an immaturity, a spiritual immaturity. And so this first problem he's about to weigh into, this uh, issue of immaturity, um, I want us to see, first of all, the, the, the manner in which he does it. Look at verse 10. I love this. Here's how he begins to walk into their immaturity. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, Now think about this. Look up just a few verses up in your Bible at the very first sentence of this letter. Who is this? This is Paul who was called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. He has been called out by God to be one of a very small number of men who had been eyewitnesses to Jesus through whom God is gonna speak inspired books of the Bible. He could have started into this first problem and said, I command you as an apostle called by Jesus Christ. Listen up. But he says, no, I appeal to you, brothers. He starts in familial terms. The way I've been thinking about this is he's about, he's about to have a really hard conversation with them, but he wants to make sure that they know what room they're having that conversation in. It's not the courtroom. This isn't coming to condemn and lower the hammer. This is in the family room. As he says, a brother, but really as a spiritual father to them. He wants them to understand their place in this. Listen, you are called as saints. You are Christ, but we need to talk about some things. I appeal to you, brothers. And, and so, but also, it, yes, it's familial, but look at the next phrase. It's under the authority of Christ. I appeal to you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he wants them right out of the gate to understand these aren't just Paul's words or Paul's opinion, but he is appealing to them by the authority and I love, he says, of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is not up on a pedestal here in his mind. He sits under the very same authority, humbly, that he wants them to sit under when it comes to the word of God, the word of Christ. And he deals with this first problem that's gonna take four chapters, interestingly enough. So we're gonna be thinking about this one problem for quite a few weeks here at Grace. But the, the, the symptoms of the problem is verse 10. Divisions had formed and there was quarreling happening in this church. When the world sees Christians at each other's throats, I think it makes Christ look divided and it makes the gospel look powerless. Because if, if certainly if what they 
preach and, and teach bears that fruit, then why bother? Paul is concerned that the gospel look powerless. Verse 17, the very end, look at that phrase. Here's what he, he does not want to happen. He does not want the cross of Christ to be emptied of its power. Like taking the battery out of your phone empties it of its power. It's still a phone. Like taking bullets out of a gun empties the gun of its power. It's still a gun, but you've taken out of it the very thing that makes it function for what it was made for. Can't protect anything without bullets. And, and, and Paul is concerned that the roots of these quarreling and division, this upside down, these upside down ways of thinking that they have, actually are going to lead to emptying the cross of its power. And he doesn't want that. So he walks into it. They've gotten three things upside down in these verses as we see it. Number one, they'd elevated human ministers, human spiritual leaders above Christ. They've elevated baptism over the gospel. The outward sort of act, obedient act, the ceremony of baptism has been seen as more important as the gospel itself. And third, they'd elevated style over substance. I actually, this morning, thought, I, I wish I could go back and retitle my sermon. You can just scratch it out. I think it should be called Looking for Power in All the Wrong Places because that's what Paul's saying here is the power of salvation here. They've, they've, they've gotten it upside down and, and they're attributing the power of salvation to man and, um, and ceremony and words and he wants to right the ship. So let's look through these one at a time. Number one, they elevated human ministers above Christ. Verse 12 again, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. <laughs> what are they doing? They're dividing up over their spiritual leaders. First of all, Paul was probably the spiritual father of many of them. Paul was the one who was responsible for bringing the gospel to Corinth in the first place. And we're told in Acts 18 that for a year and a half, he reasoned in the synagogues daily and taught and preached and began to build this church. But then at some point he had left and Apollos has had a ministry among them powerfully. Acts 19 says Apollos had greatly helped those who through grace had believed. So he took the handoff from Paul in some ways and had greatly helped those who had come to believe, powerfully refuting Jews in public and showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So we know very clearly at least these two strong spiritual leaders in their past of this church that they're aligning under. Now I'm not sure about Cephas or Peter. That's just the other name for Peter, the apostle Peter. We don't know anything in the Bible. It doesn't tell us that Peter visited and ministered in Corinth. So it might be that Paul is just sort of on a roll. They're specifically quarreling about Paul and Apollos, but he says, you know, who cares about following you know, Peter as well? He sort of lumps them in but they were aligning themselves under men and not under Christ. And I want us to see this. It wasn't over doctrinal disagreement. It would be one thing if Apollos was a heretic and Paul was preaching the true gospel. Then that's a good thing if some align under Paul and not under Paulus, but that's not the point. In, in Acts 15, referring to all the other apostles, when he's talking about these are the things that were handed down to us of first importance, this is the essential gospel, Paul says, whether then it was I or they, any of the other apostles, so we preach and so you believed. So you see the point? 
He certainly didn't take, disagree with Peter if Peter somehow was one of the three leaders that, that they were lining up under. He said, Peter and I preach the same gospel. And he speaks very highly of Apollos. And in uh, chapter 16 of this letter near the end, he says at some point he had urged Apollos to go back to Corinth and to continue ministering. And for some reason, Apollos wasn't strongly inclined to do that at the time. But the point is, Paul would not have been encouraging Apollos to go back and keep ministering if he and Apollos disagreed over doctrine or the gospel, right? So the sad thing is, is these divisions weren't even over substantive things. They were more like a popularity contest. They'd turn their spiritual leaders into celebrities, which we know something about right now in the 21st century, don't we? I mean, sadly, celebrity pastor has become a term a thing in an age of podcasts and, and, and proliferation of published books and blogs and social media. There are many pastors who didn't seek to, to become celebrities who have sort of been rallied you know, around by people who have become their, their fans. And others, sadly, actually have sought out to be celebrity pastors and to create a platform for themselves. So we understand in our culture, taking the celebrity culture we live in and then applying that to the church well, here right in the first century, they were doing the same thing. And not that Paul or Apollos or Peter, for that matter, wanted any of this. Paul is obviously um, offended and put off that people are going around claiming to be Paul fans, and he's, he's just ashamed of this, right? As Randy pointed out last week, in the first century, kind of like our day, was a celebrity culture. These popular speakers called sophists, wisdom speakers, which sort of like traveling motivational speakers would make their living from town to town, waxing eloquent and, and holding audiences captive by their powerful sort of rhetorical um, impressiveness such that they would become celebrities. Uh, I was reading, Moyer Hubbard has a great book he wrote called uh, Christianity in the Greco-Roman World. And he talks about this phenomenon and he says there was a vast number of these sort of people winning the admiration of city after city, drawing nearly the whole world to honor them for their crafty argumentation. He says the Corinthians relished oratory. They were fed a rich diet of it from birth. They erected statues to their favorite orators. They were a society fixated on rhetorical prowess and beguiled by expert practitioners of the art. Experts. In, the, in this art. So it's not hard to see, right, how this was getting imported. This lens, celebrity kind of fan lenses were now being applied to their, their pastors and their spiritual leading. But then it gets worse. After they place these spiritual leaders on pedestals, they begin infighting, fan fighting. Have you ever been to like a Major League Baseball game, like a Dodger game, when one of their biggest rivals, this is showing my lack of sports knowledge, who would be the biggest rival to the Dodgers? Who? Okay, the Giants, for example. The New York Giants. No, I'm just kidding. I know. <laughs> I got you. I, I know the difference. Anyway, um, <laughs> so imagine a Dodger game, and they're playing the Giants. The Giants are down, and it's mostly a sea of blue. Everyone's wearing their hats and their, their jerseys, and they got their foam fingers, and they're cheering. But then there's these pockets of whatever color the Giants are, which is orange, right? And you see them kind of huddled together and they're there 
especially hoping that they win so they can get it in the faces of the Dodger fans in their own home stadium, right? And as more beer is consumed and the game goes on, you know, tensions can rise. Maybe you've seen it before and you start hearing someone yelling across and someone, you know, there's a home run by the Dodgers and they're like, yeah, the Giants fans. And then the giant pitcher strikes out and yeah. And then, then maybe a fist fight breaks out and security guards have to come in. I mean, something ugly like this is going down, maybe minus the foam fingers, and Budweiser, but still these Christians are getting into a yeah and, 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 and arguing with each other over I follow Paul and I follow Apollos. It's ugly. But I want us to see something here. They're not just um, idolizing these spiritual leaders like Paul and Apollos. That's bad enough, but really what they're doing is they're all boasting in themselves. Notice that there's a very subtle difference between saying um, Paul's the best no, Apollos is the best. And saying, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. You see the difference? The second one's virtue signaling. It's saying to all those who agree with me, oh yeah, I, I, I get it. I know who, who the best preacher is. And anyone who thinks otherwise, psh, they're proud. They're puffed up over their personal tastes in, in preachers. And then there's the I follow Christ people. I think what's going on with the I follow Christ crowd is I think that Paul lumps them in because probably there were some among them who were sort of rising above it all and saying, well, I follow Christ. <laughs> Clearly, you're all immature following these other you know, human leaders, but they probably have the same air of superiority with them. Sort of like at the, at the baseball analogy, someone's standing up in the middle of the fan fighting and saying, you guys are all idiots. It's about the great sport of baseball and just seeing a good game, right? So just enjoy the game. It's not about one team or the other. And there's some saying, well, I follow Christ. And Paul sees pride behind it all, and he calls it all out. And I want us to think this morning, which is a good reminder, you can, they're actually theologically correct, right? The I follow Christ crowd are at least following the right person. They've, they've, they at least see the right celebrity of the church, Jesus. But they're wrong, you can be right in an ugly way and in a self-righteous way. And I just want us to see that we can slip into this. We're not immune from this, Grace. Maybe not over our particular preachers or elders necessarily, although especially at a church where there's a shared pulpit and different people are preaching, we certainly there's, it could have things like happen. But I want us to think for a minute just in terms of how we think of ourselves related to other churches. We can have this sort of attitude. Oh, we don't have a senior pastor. We're an elder-led church. I've, I've had conversations with people before where if I'm honest, in my heart, there is a little bit of that, that sense. That's ugly. Or, oh, your church just does topical series? Oh, we're committed to expositional preaching. We preach through whole books of the Bible. <laughs> oh, no, we don't break our people into age and stage ministries. We just have grace groups, multi-generational. Now, we have good reasons for these things, even biblical reasons that we think it's wise to do this, and these are some ways that can honor Christ and magnify the gospel as a church, but we can hold these things in our own hearts in a very puffed-up way. That at the end of the day, Paul would say, you've got the wrong glasses on. You've got this upside down. When you raise a ministry method or a ministry value and put any credit that any success or fruit here is because we figured it out. You just got it upside down. Whether it's a human by name or a human method, 
So we need to look through the gospel lens and look at how Paul forces them to think about this, their, their faulty way of thinking with the gospel. Verse 13, he begins firing off these rhetorical questions. And the first two essentially say, Christ has only one body and his body has only one head. That's what the gospel says. First of all, he says, is Christ divided? No, is the, is the assumed answer. No, Christ only has one body. You see, the gospel is this. Christ died at the cross to bear our wrath so that we can stand forgiven at the cross and he invites us to freely receive this and when we do, if you do, a miracle happens. God causes his spirit to dwell in you and he brings you into union with Christ or unites you with Christ in his death and his resurrection in such a profound and intimate way that we become one flesh with him. He calls the church his bride, that we are united with him in such a way that we are the body of Christ. He only has one body, which is why boasting in any uh, human minister or ministry method is foolish because we're all part of the same body. Um, Let me just go to this. Look at this. This made me laugh. John Piper, what a beautiful way of expressing the foolishness of this. So the fingers on the right hand would be foolish to boast over the fingers of the left hand because their leader is the right wrist and not the left. Well, that's foolish, right? There's only one body. They're all functioning together for the sake of the one body. So you can't divide Christ out like that. That's not gospel, Paul says. But secondly, he says, Christ's body only has one head. Christ's body is not (laughs) multi-headed. Was Paul crucified for you, he says? Of course not. No human minister could ever, no matter how gifted by God or used by God or blessed in his ministry or her ministry by God, could ever have died to bear the punishment of your sin and provide peace between you and God. No human minister could ever do that. No human minister is responsible for making you spiritually alive when you were dead in your sin and trespass. They may get an honorable mention for having delivered the invitation on Jesus' behalf, but they didn't make you alive with Christ. And no human minister is ever going to be the ongoing source of your spiritual life, so don't try to make them that. Jesus is. Christ's body has one head. His name's Jesus. I'm going to mix metaphors here, which Scott Rosencrantz likes to say, if you're going to mix metaphors, you're going to break a few eggs. <laughs> Credit to Scott Rosencrantz. But no, I want to mix metaphors. So the body only has one head, or the branches are all connected to just one vine, to use Jesus' analogy. And so understand, from the greatest to the least in God's church, by that I mean from those that God uniquely gifts in certain ways to serve the body in much more prominent, you know, upfront ways, and those who, the members who are the least, who, who God has gifted and uses in ways that, that Paul will say later in, in this letter are, are, sort of, are, are less impressive or less obvious, either way, we're all branches, So you may be uh, drawing some of your life through some stronger, more seasoned branches who are leading you and discipling you, but they're still getting their sap from the same place you are. They're just a, a, a means. There's one vine. There's one head of the body. The power of salvation never ultimately comes from a human minister as its source. It's always in Christ, and it's always coming to us because what Jesus did at the cross. He was crucified for you. The church should only have one celebrity. It's Jesus, one head. 
So that's the first way their values are upside down, is raising human leaders to the place that only Christ should sit. Number two, they'd elevated baptism over the gospel, the, 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 the act of baptism, this, this ordinance and this ceremony, the actual act being performed on a believer of being you know, dunked in the water and out as a display of their dying to sin and rising to walk in newness of life. That had been elevated in importance above the gospel. I want you to see what I mean. I think his third rhetorical question here in verse uh, 12, no, 13, seems to imply that there were even some who were name dropping who baptized them as if that mattered at all. He says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? (laughs) It's just, it's incredulous to him that anyone would think that was something impressive. Who physically put you under the water and, and lifted you back out? That you'd brag about that rather than the name of the one into whose name you were baptized. That's why he goes off a little in verse 14, he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in your name. In other words, he, he, he thinks if that's where you guys have gone with baptism is bragging about who dunked you, whew, I am thankful I only dunked a couple of you so that more people aren't walking around bragging about being baptized by Paul. And then he says, I love this, I, I did also baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. Now, I want to say two little quick things about that little parenthetical. In your Bible, maybe there's parentheses around it. Two things I love about this. One is it, I think it's a helpful example of how we believe God has inspired the scriptures. He didn't just dictate to each of these human authors. They just sat down and they just wrote down word for word every word that God said. No, 2 Peter 1.21 says that men spoke, carried along by the Holy Spirit, such that what we have is exactly what God intends and wants for us to have. Everything pertaining to life and godliness, God has spoken to us, but men spoke to us. So this is Paul speaking to us, but it's also God speaking to us. And so in a very human way, as Paul is probably dictating this letter, if you look at the very end of the letter, you can see he steps in and he says, I wrote the greeting at the end with my own hand. But you can sort of picture him as he's fired up and he says, I'm glad I only baptized those two guys. And the guy's written that. He's like, oh, wait a minute. Stephanus, yeah, that's right. Baptized his household too. Well, okay, write that down. I also baptized Stephanus and, and his household. And then you better add in there, I can't remember if I baptized anybody else just to cover my bases. But God's inspired his word through humans like Paul who didn't remember everyone he baptized. Nevertheless, God is superintended so that he has spoken to us exactly what we need. And, and these words are true. I love that. The other thing I think we need to see here is I think the very fact that he couldn't remember who all he baptized tells us a little something about how important Paul thought who you were baptized by was in the grand scheme of things, right? It didn't matter, which is why he then says, Christ didn't send me to baptize. He sent me to preach the gospel. Now, that's not a slam on baptism. He's not ditching the Great Commission where Jesus said, make disciples and baptize them. Paul was committed to the ordinance of baptism. You see it in the book of Romans very clearly. He assumed that Christians would be baptized. What he's saying is that the act of being baptized is totally secondary to the hearing and believing and receiving in the heart of the gospel that then your baptism is a visual representation of this miracle that has happened in your heart of union to Christ. 
So don't get it upside down. Don't place the importance on the physical, any aspect of the physical act of your baptism. The person who dunked you, doesn't matter if you were dunked one time backwards or three times forward. Doesn't matter where you were baptized. You could have been baptized in the Jordan River by Billy Graham. Doesn't matter. At the risk of sounding irreverent, actually. I believe this. The fact that the, the act of baptism is not what saves you. You could be baptized by Jesus. And you might not be saved if your confidence is in the fact that Jesus dunked me. But not in the fact that Jesus died for your sin. Who cares who baptized you? or where you were baptized, or what exact mode you were baptized. Paul says the point is the gospel. And to the extent that your baptism was an expression of what happened when God made you alive with Christ and you received the gospel, then baptism is significant. But it's not to be lifted up above the gospel. So just two, two people I want to speak to on this point. One, uh, if, if you have believed in the gospel, you've believed in Christ, and you're walking with him now, but you haven't been baptized yet, I don't want you to hear baptism is not important. And I, would, I want to encourage you to be baptized and to sign up for our next baptism class, which will be coming early this fall, and to be baptized and to, I, to make that public declaration of your faith here, identifying yourself both with Christ's church universal and this local church in particular, that you're a part of the family of God. I would love for you to do that in the right way. But second, I was thinking maybe there's someone here, some of you who, you were baptized at one point. You got dunked under the water, maybe in eighth grade because all the eighth graders at the end of their Bible instruction manual, they baptized. Maybe you were baptized, but this morning for the first time, it might, it's occurring to you, you know what? Really all along, my confidence that I belong to God is that, well, I was baptized on August 8th, you know, 1987 or whatever. And you realize, no, 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 I put my confidence in the wrong place. I have not really turned from my sin and trusted in Christ as the one who paid for my sin. And I would beg you this morning to make that right, to get, make, make yourself right with God by receiving his forgiveness in Jesus' name this morning. If, I'd love to talk to you more about that. Our, our prayer uh, team would love to talk to you about that this morning as well before you leave. So they had three things I said upside down. The first one was human leaders, more important than Christ. Baptism got upended as more significant than the gospel. And here's the third one. They'd elevated style over substance. Look at the last part of verse 17. He says, Christ didn't send me to baptize. He sent me to preach the gospel, not with eloquent words of wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What literally he says is, he didn't send me to preach with Sophia words, wisdom words, pointing to the sophists, these other public speakers who were these wise, motivated speakers. He says, I didn't come preaching in, in that sort of way and manner. I didn't want to empty the cross of its power. I didn't want to put your confidence in the craftiness of people. I want to do two things, though, with this verse. I, this is an important verse here. I want to make sure we understand what it isn't saying, but then very clearly understand what he is denouncing. First, I want to be clear. Paul is not saying that any and all forms of eloquence empty the cross of its power. That there's no place for the pursuit of carefully thought words and chosen words and, and carefully crafted illustrations and, and explanations and, and, and careful teaching and even um, emotionally appropriately effective preaching and teaching. 
So on one hand, think back to Moses. Moses used his lack of eloquence as an excuse when God said, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And God called him on it and said, how dare you imply that I can't use you even though you're not eloquent. I can use whoever I want, whomever I want. At the same time, I don't think we should throw out all forms of eloquence as automatically emptying the cross of its power. I'll give you a couple of reasons. Paul himself was certainly eloquent. Have you read the book of Romans? I mean, he's no oaf writing that book. In Acts 18, it says when he was in Corinth, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and he tried to persuade the Jews and Greeks. When you try to persuade something, that's much more than just throwing it out there, playing it unadorned. There it is. Here's the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. You receive him by faith. What are you gonna do? Nothing? Okay, I'm gonna move on. No, he persuaded them with words, with carefully chosen words. In Acts 18, describes Paulos as an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, and that wasn't a criticism. It wasn't saying, oh, he's an eloquent man. He's one of those. No, it was saying in his teaching and his preaching, he was eloquent. God used him powerfully. There is a type of eloquence that actually magnifies the cross of Christ, I think, and, and the God of the Bible. Consider this. What's the largest book in your Bible? It's a book of poetry. Not just poetry, but poetry that we're supposed to sing with skilled musicians and artistry. And the language of the poets are rich with metaphor and simile and, 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 and sometimes you might think flowery language. Can't you just tell it to me plain? But God sees it. And if you add up all the songs in the Bible and other sort of poetic language in the prophets and the, book, the apocalyptic books, maybe a third of your Bible is poetry. So as God himself, Piper says, put it in the minds of biblical writers to think of analogies and comparisons and metaphors and similes and symbols and parables to search out words that point to the reality in indirect ways rather than always describe them uh, directly with the least imaginative words. There's a place for this. In fact, you know, I, about in 2013, he uh, he gave this message uh, on the life of George Herbert, who was a poet, a Christian poet in England. Most of George Herbert's poems, I'm just going to be honest, uh, I can't hang with. It's, it's, it's too high sort of language for me. There's a few that I, I've, I've read and, and understood. But, but he was talking about George Herbert as an example to these pastors of, at a conference of the, 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 the best sense of how eloquence can magnify the glory of God. And, uh, and, and look at what he said. He says, there is a sort of a pursuit of eloquence that, that does this, makes every effort to see and savor the glories of Christ by giving our utmost finding, uh, to finding striking, penetrating, awakening ways of saying what we see. What he's saying is there's a pursuit of thinking, how can I say this in a way that does any justice to the glory of this? How can I say it in a way that helps someone not hear it in the same stale way they've always heard it, but hear it again afresh? Obviously that the power comes from the spirit, but in, in the thinking of how to say it, he says, actually can help you see and savor the glory. He said it another way like this. The effort to try to say more about the glory than you ever said is a way of seeing more than you've ever seen. This sort of pursuit, I think, of eloquence in, in the best sense is recognizing we're talking about some glorious things here and we want to try to, give our, to do it justice with our words, to do our very best, understanding all along what we're going to hear in a couple chapters that one plants, one waters, and God gives growth. 
So I just don't want us to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But I'd also make sure that we don't, that we throw out the bathwater. So look at what Paul actually is denouncing. What he's denouncing, I think, is, is manipulative dramatics, verbal cleverness, gimmicks and techniques and word craft and delivery in such a way as to, to elicit a, an emotional response from an audience. It's, it's playing tricks. It's entertainment preaching. Have you ever been watching a movie, for example, and all of a sudden it's just this compelling scene and you find yourself choked up and then you stop in hindsight and you're like, I actually don't believe, that's not according to my worldview. Like I just got choked up at something that I think is wrong. Have you ever had that experience? I have. I'm like, oh, that's so great. Wait a minute. No, that's not great. But why? Well, because an actor can deliver a scene in such a compelling way that makes you go, yeah. And then you're like, wait, no. Paul's denouncing anything like that. Eloquence that, 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 that wins but lacks substance. That's mere style. Moyer Hubbard in his book again about the Greco-Roman uh, culture and Christianity in it, he, he has this one description of these public speakers in the day and their form of eloquence. Listen, says its practitioners were more concerned with hearing the applause of the audience than improving the character of the audience. Now, as preachers, we need to hear that and say, may that never be our motive. To be more concerned in my mind at, is someone gonna retweet my sermon this week? I'm not a, above that. <laughs> My heart is not above be, being tempted that way, but Paul's denouncing that sort of thing, mainly being concerned with getting the applause of an audience rather than actually being helpful and improving the character of the audience. But that was the common thing in these days. Their declamations had become the ultimate example of form dominating over content. In the words of one critic, Perseus, he said so much oratory was simply frothy inflated stuff like an old bow smothered under the weight of its bloated bark. Paul doesn't want our preaching to be like that. That's what he's denouncing. Paul wasn't out for applause. He wasn't out for likes on Facebook or uh, make, building a platform or gaining a fan base. He, wasn't try he didn't want to win people with his cleverness. He wanted to win people with the only thing that he could win people with, the word of the cross. I love this little quote came across. Again, I was reminded of last night, a Scottish pastor, James Denny, says, no man can give at once the impression that he himself is clever and also that Jesus Christ is mighty to save. That's what Paul wants. He wants it to be very clear that every believer, their faith rests on not the wisdom of men, but the power of God, which Moyer is going to preach more on next week. The power of salvation is not in our own verbal cleverness. It's in the word of the cross. And so when he sees Corinthian Christians lining up behind uh, into fan clubs because that preacher's style is, it speaks to me and that preacher and not so much, he wants to make it very clear what's it all about and what's it not. So as we finish this last point, I was reminded this week of the, the conversion testimony of Charles Spurgeon. He was a pastor, a famous preacher in, in uh, England, in London. He ended up preaching for years at Metropolitan Tabernacle to massive audiences, and God just gifted him to be an incredible speaker. He ended up um, being called by others the Prince of Preachers. But I love his testimony because his testimony combined with then how God used him as a preacher beautifully highlight, I think, both sides of what I'm trying to get at here. Let me, can I read it for you? All right. 
This is how it happened. He was 15 and there was a snowstorm, a huge blizzard, and he was trying to trudge through it to get to church and it was so bad he couldn't get there. So he turned into this primitive Methodist church that was the closest one and he sat down. And let me just read, these are his words now. In that chapel, there might have been a dozen or 15 people. The minister didn't come that morning. Snowed in, I suppose. So a poor man, a a shoemaker, a tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. That's crazy. If you've ever been to England and some of the churches over there and the pulpit's way up there and the staircase wrapping around, you can imagine the guy's shaking in his boots as he's going up into there, right? He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. The text was, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth, Isaiah 45, 22. He didn't even pronounce the words rightly. But that didn't matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. So he began, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. That doesn't take a deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. A man need not go to college to learn to look. You could be the biggest fool and yet you can look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. Then it says, look unto me. I, he said in broad Essex. Andy, what is broad Essex? Oh, he's not here. I'm going to ask Andy later. I want to know what a broad Essex sounds like. But he says, many of ye are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. And then he says, look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I'm dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend. I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Look to me. Look to me, is what Jesus said. And when he'd managed to spin out 10 minutes, he was at the length of his tether. (laughs) And then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. And he said, young man, you look very miserable. (laughs) Well, I did. But I hadn't been accustomed to have remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit before. However, it was a good blow, and it struck. He continued, you'll always be miserable. Miserable in life, miserable in death. If you do not obey this text, but if you obey now, this moment, you'll be saved. And then he shouted as only a primitive Methodist can do. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. He says, there and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And in that moment, I saw the sun. And I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ. I love that. It highlights two very important things. God is not hampered to save by lack of eloquence. How many are going to be with God forever in heaven because that guy manned up, walked up into that pulpit and did his 10 minutes and got to the end of his tether and sat down? Through the ministry of Charles Spurgeon, maybe hundreds of thousands of people God has used to, to draw them into his kingdom. It's amazing. So I want you to be encouraged, every last one of us, as members of God's body. He, he gifts the body in different ways, we're going to see in 1 Corinthians, as the Spirit gives one gift to another one, but it's all for the sake of building up the body of Christ, and God can use you no matter how eloquent or not you think you are. And yet also God is delighted to order the church and gift the church in the ways that he sees fit so that he can, we can all be equipped for the sake of ministry. He equipped Charles Spurgeon in a unique way and gave him a mind and a skill with words that didn't empty the cross of its power and lead people to put their faith in Spurgeon, but to put their faith truly in Christ and his cross. And so I just want to say, may God multiply more of both of this among here at grace.
all please. So with that, I want to pray. Lord, thank you for the way you help us to see our, uh, our upside-down thinking, for calling it out in our hearts. God, thank you for the gospel that puts things right. I pray that Christ would have his rightful place on the throne of our hearts today, that you would help us to see even the most helpful men and women uh, in our life who have ministered to us and discipled us and helped us as, as branches. And Christ is the vine. God, I pray that you would help us to not put our confidence and our faith in any outward observance or obedience or ceremony that we have checked the box of, but always and only in, our, in repentance and faith uh, and the grace uh, that you give us through Christ. And I pray that you help us to see the cross as full of power this morning and your Holy Spirit as more than competent to use each one of us as able ministers of the gospel because that's what you call us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.